Ігі Ласелко Бауст поєднавчасно балося з класу банду Олег Фінспері. Welcome to Con Langer, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Forley. Uh, with me in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, utilizing his iPhone for strange reasons, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, now, this episode almost uh, didn't happen. Well, it was delayed because uh, I had a major powder outage and apparently <laughs> a very large portion of the sort of greater DC area also had a power outage. And, and still has still a power outage. outage. Yes. It's going to keep having it for many more days, apparently. <laughs> yeah, luckily yeah. I'm very much on the fringes of that area. I'm in... Uh, if if anyone wants to like look me up on Google Earth, I'm in Elkins, West Virginia. That's in Randolph County. That's uh, so um, I'm on the edges of that affected area, and there's still issues. Uh, I work at a gas station, and we still have no ice, and uh, have lost <laughs> a bunch of merchandise. <laughs> Yikes! Yikes! <laughs> yeah, but. I have internet, so I'm I'm doing okay. That's the right. real measure of civilization. It is. <laughs> Not refrigeration, <laughs> the internet. Oh, uh, we lost like almost everything in our fridge. It's 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 funny because usually uh, in the fridge here, I live with my parents, and usually in the fridge there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not interested in eating. Now there's just not much stuff in the fridge. Mm. <laughs> but. Luckily for Conlangery, George got power. Hooray! <laughs> it, it was funny because um, on that day, it was uh, Saturday that it went out, I think. Or, well, Friday night that it went out. And it was out through Sunday. I called Mike to have him tell everybody that I might not be able to do the show. And... I was freaking out because I was worried that it was not going to come back on Monday in time for me to uh, get the episode that came out this week, which is, I think, 57, uh, the the animacy one, uh, to come out because I hadn't finished. Well, I'd edited it, but I hadn't um, done everything to it and exported it and scheduled it to go. I think a major so, power disaster is a good excuse for missing the perfect <laughs> the perfect track record well the almost perfect track record we've had so far. I know. It's it's weirdly uh it's it's it it was a weird thing to be worried about. It was in the midst of uh trying to take care of small children in a power outage and all that crap. But, that's an act of God, right? Power outage? Yes. Probably. But we that's going it's uh, let's not talk any more about my power outage <laughs> because, I mean, I can discuss that for shows and shows, but we and can go have... on. Mm -hmm. What? Sorry. No, I was just going to say you probably didn't have air conditioning to either. No. 
was bad. But we have a cool basement, just like William does. Hmm. Hide. <laughs> um, but we're going to come on and talk about our featured, our not featured, our main topic for today, <laughs> which will be loan words. Hooray. So everybody knows what a loan word is, I, I presume. Just it is a word that one language has borrowed from another language. Considering everyone here is English speakers, we're familiar with all sorts of them because English is very happy to borrow words from everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot. English is a bit more, of a more in way. fact, more in fact, and this surprised me. I found, um, we can talk about this in a bit, uh, somebody who did an, sort of an inventory across multiple languages to find out how happy they were to borrow words from other languages. And mm-hmm. English borrows more freely than even Japanese. Oh, really? yes. Which surprised me. I thought, I mean, Japanese is sort of infamous for borrowing all sorts of words, but nope, English borrows more. Well, now, I guess that I makes don't sense. have like, your thing if... in, in front of me, but um, I remember seeing one where English was at the top of the list, and guess what was at the bottom? Chinese. Yes. <laughs> nice guess. I guess if if Japanese is like like an old like an old pair of pants that's all patched up all over, English is like a quilt that the whole thing is patches. Like it's <laughs> just patches. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a funny. Okay. <laughs> I mean, English borrowed a pronoun from Old Norse. So... English is funny. <laughs> well, yeah, oh, and it doesn't. Even, we don't even have open pronouns like Japanese does. We have we have closed set pronouns, but we borrowed one. <laughs> okay, so let's get down through this. So there's a lot of different reasons for um. For borrowing words, it's just a natural part of language contact. And yeah. William, you know, noted especially, I guess it's pretty common for us to think about invasions, particularly since a lot of the initial sort of borrowings from Latin and French in English came from invading forces. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, um, but there's all sorts of other things that can drive that sort of borrowing. I mean, frequently, if they're not expressions of overt political power, you know, you come in and stomp on someone, Mm -hmm. they're expressions of some sort of power, cultural power, economic power. So for a lot of the ancient Near East and all the way over to Rome, ancient Greek had sort of the same reputation as French had for a long time, especially in the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. It was the language of intellect. It was the language of pleasure. Um, a huge amount of Roman vocabulary talking about food and sex comes from ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this this sort of interesting um, tension that reappears constantly. And then the ancient Romans, certain uptight ancient Romans like Cato, you know, were very anti-ancient Greek, very much against the language, but even Cato eventually gave in and learned it late in his life just because it was such an important part of the political and cultural life of Rome that if you wanted to know what was going on, you needed to know Greek. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another thing is sort of indirectly this kind of economic power 
that can come from having an advanced technology that doesn't require you to go take people over. It's just the technology takes over. And probably the biggest one ever is agriculture. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bantu languages, which are spoken all over Africa, practically, um, traveled with pastoralism, basically. Um, and it obliterated all things in its path as the technology of animal husbandry moved, such that even people like several pygmy groups, like the, the Mayaka, right, who almost certainly <laughs> um, are not the original Bantu stock, are speaking a Bantu language now. Uh-huh. Hmm. Um, and there's some reason to believe some of the spread of Indo-European through um, Western and Northern Europe is motivated not by actual Indo-European peoples moving, mm-hmm. but by technologies and of, of war and of agricultural agriculture moving. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, in particular, things like uh, dealing with horses and so forth. Now, in those, would it be a case where the superior technology, your la- the language, I guess the receptive language, doesn't have a word for it, and it just sort of, um, I don't know if calcs is the right word, but it, it just sort of copies it over into their own? Right, right. And and we can talk about different kinds of borrowing, but that's, yes, a, a major um, impetus to borrowing is you have a new technology. Oops. I mean, that's um, often what? what you expect. So it, what? Oh, nothing. Go ahead. All right. If you were going to say we hadn't recorded it all, I was going to have a small meltdown, but okay. Well, no, um, it's just like Skype stopped for a second. Are we to be good? All right. So, edit out. Go. Um, another, uh, what was I going to say? Right. So, many of the substrate words in ancient Greek have mm-hmm. to do with local agricultural products and a lot of fishing vocabulary because when the Greeks came into Greeks, they had not been fishermen. They had been living in deep inland. Mm-hmm. So they, they learn that as well. Mm. Um, business, uh-huh. trade lines, right? Indonesian is a lingua franca over a large area for trading. Persian was used mm-hmm. from China to, you know, probably parts of Europe, again, as a language of trade, taking vocabulary with it everywhere it went. Mm. Um, I think also because Greece had a huge sort of maritime Empire didn't didn't it? Uh, I think I was reading in the last lingua franca that they left nautical terms all over the place. Sure, after they had been in place for a few centuries and sort of absorbed the local culture, mm-hmm. um, right, and then sort of let, you know took it and ran with it. Yes, then we had the Athenians in particular had a, a giant maritime empire. Yeah, um, and then the last major thing that sends people flying all over the place is religion. Um, so Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these have moved great distance, taking a language and or at least loan words with them. Um, many, because of the special status of Arabic and Islam, Arabic tends to be borrowed wholesale in large chunks, um, such that listening to, um, you know, an L1 speaker of English from the, the American South talking about Islam is sometimes very hard to understand because he's using so much Arabic. Hmm. Now, um, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and maybe we'll go into this in a bit, but um, what exactly, where is the line between having a word come from another language and it being a loan word that's absorbed into your language? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So uh, I think a good example is 
In for most Americans, Arabic is a very alien language and will stay that way probably for a long time unless there is some major revolutionary religious change in this country. Mm-hmm. However, when I took Arabic, the um, our, our Arabic teacher had us up at the chalkboard and we were writing a bunch of words. Um, and he had us write one word out, and a bunch of the Malaysian students started giggling because <laughs> he just said the word for butt. Okay. I mean, it's a more polite word in Arabic, but in Malaysian, it was kind of funny. So that, I think, is definitely a loan word okay. in the Malaysian case, yeah. right? Because it's it's part of their language now. And mm. if if we want to, to sort of take the example of Arabic, English has a large number of Arabic loan words already. Not um, not as much as Spanish does, but we right. sort of the words Algebra, like, Zenith... But yeah. now that's what I was kind of getting I, at with my question. Like, when does yeah. it stop being a loan word and actually an English word? Like, algebra is, I don't think, is as much of a loan word as maybe Quran. Yeah. No, it's a loan word. I mean, it, 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 we're, we're talking here about where it comes from originally. Whether or not your native speakers who have not been to school think it's from someplace else or not is probably the obvious test. So it just yeah, matters whether. I think, mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, from, I think, from, from a linguistic standpoint, you know, algebra is a loan word, period, end of story. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was just loanword until it was like, like really in deep in brain there or anything. I think we we might want to actually entertain that because just the that notion a little bit because yes, it's a loanword is a loanword, but all loanwords become completely nativized mm-hmm. over Given time. time. Yeah. But, and what I'm uh huh yeah so it. It might be useful to think of, you know, how long is it going to take for a loan word to become nativized to the point where um, speakers of the language don't think about its uh, foreign origin. Now, I was wondering with in terms of, um, well, going into the conlang portion, if you say you take all your words, but a lot of your words you derive using sound changes and get them from natlangs and bring them into the conlang. Would they all be potentially loan words, or would they be like a like a derived word? Like English has loads and loads and loads of them. Um, but I wasn't sure if they were all still considered loan words. You know, up to you. I don't hmm. think it matters. I mean, I don't think we need to get hung up on the loan word vocabulary. Hmm. I mean, what we're talking about today is kind of a, a con culture mm-hmm. topic, yeah. um, and. Maybe an, a, a, you know some ideas about avenues of ways that new vocabulary can enter your language from other languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about, I mean, you know, <laughs> whether you want to tell us or not is is up to you. Huh? Yeah. Well, I didn't. I, huh? Okay. Go ahead. I was just saying I didn't have any specific examples, but I was thinking, for example, like I know, and when I when I come, like I don't want my language to just be a whole like looks like cookie cutter from random languages of the world but i guess i kind of figure something that's been through a couple sound changes and has a more native sound is sounds more like a native part of language maybe um not so much a loan word as like a word that sounds very foreign like for example um do like the english word like taco is that a loan word yes okay and then i was thinking of words like like um when we were talking about how would they use like words like um I don't know, catamaran or words like, uh, just words that are really kind of not, we didn't, it seems like we didn't have a word for them, so we just sort of nixed someone else's word. Um, 
I think we need to. One thing that you brought up that I think needs to be it is kind of important for for conlangers is sort of you do have to in order to do loan words in your conlang get into a bit of the conworlding segment. What languages exist in your con world, or mm-hmm. is it, it is it part of the real world? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, how should I say it? Um, yeah. And uh, when did these loans occur? Mm-hmm. This is why if you do the diachronics method, you you may want to. Uh, try to affix dates to your sound changes, at least sort of rough dates, so that mm-hmm. you can say, okay, this loan word entered this language at uh, year 200. What sound changes would have all, would have applied to it? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is the situation with Korean and Japanese. Both of them have been constantly borrowing words from Chinese for, well, millennia almost. Yeah. And in Japanese, you have multiple layers of borrowings mm-hmm. representing sort of fossilizing and then running through Japanese sound changes, the history of Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I, I, they're all loan words as far as I'm concerned. But mm-hmm. as far as most probably uneducated Japanese speakers care, it's just a Japanese word. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just talking about this is I, – I, I don't want us to get too hung up on borrowing and when something stops being a loan word, because once it's borrowed, it's a loan word. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just mechanics. That's a process of borrowing and how it got there. I mean, obviously you want to explain why did they borrow this word for university or whatever? It was because they didn't have university, so they just took the word. So, right. I mean, that needs to be thought about in the process of conlanging, but whether or not it's identified as a loan word or not, I don't think matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was. We... Oh yeah, go on. Go ahead. No, no, no. You can go on. You let me go last time. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I was gonna actually move along to another uh, uh, section. Is what words are more common, more likely to be loaned? Right. So you have. Uh, we have some resources on this on uh, loan word typology, and yep. it seems like. William, you mentioned for the in the first place, nouns are more likely to be borrowed than were than uh, other parts of speech, other word classes. Yep, and that sort of makes sense because um, it's usually items of technology and items of culture, mm-hmm. usually um, that are going to be borrowed most. Right? You have lots of words for tools, and you may borrow a few verbs to describe you know, new technologies, but nouns seem to be easier. And nouns are a little bit easier to sort of to take control of. Yeah. Right. If you have a complicated infixing verb morphology, borrowing somebody else's word shapes for verbs may be a little tough going. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh Whereas nouns, I mean, typically have a fairly straightforward morphology. I don't know of any language that regularly inflects nouns with infixes. Yeah. I think another if, reason might um, go, go on. As you say, if any listener knows of a counterexample, please let us know because that would be interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think one other reason um, nouns are maybe more likely is for verbs, whatever that verb is, it's an action. And there may be an easier way to use words that you already have for it. 
you know, right. there are, it's something that's in motion. It kind of changes and there's, it's easier to find something in your natal land, in your, I guess the receptive language, so to speak, that resembles that rather than something that's just static and it's an object. If you don't have a word for it, it's not going to change and become more like a word you already have. Right, right. I mean, um, if you already, if you already have agriculture or, or crude agriculture and words for things like dig, you mm-hmm. might get a better hoe, but you don't need a new word for dig. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing that, uh, I remember reading about, again, referencing The Last Lingua Franca, which is a really great book for mm-hmm. people interested in linguistics. Uh, when talking about sort of Persian Empire and everything, uh, he mentioned that they had a particular structure for getting verb meanings from Arabic where they borrowed, I think they borrowed a noun and then used, uh, one of several verbs. Right. Like that meant sort of to do or to go or whatever. Right. Yeah. Persian uh, has a, lo- a lot of verbs that are these compound verbs where you have a noun and some verbal element. Yeah. And I think it's probably more likely to, to occur for that to occur than for wholesale borrowing of a verb to occur. Although like, you see it in languages that are fairly similar and don't have that much complexity, but like uh, I know in Spanish occasionally you get uh, weird verb borrowings like batear, but they're <laughs> a little awkward. Like hangear. What is hangear? that? Yeah, hangear to hang out. <laughs> I yes, never I've heard actually... that one. I know, I know batear to bat. Oh, I've uh, heard of printear. But... Well. Somebody, um, when I was one of the other teachers said printear, uh, to print, uh, laquear to lock, like laquear la puerta. It's Spanglish, but they actually use it, you know. (laughs) Okay. I know Spanish actually doesn't have a native word for to lock. It's, uh, cerrar con llave, literally close with a key, but Mm -hmm. they have a word for print. It's imprimir. That may have just been a university because I know in, in the university, there's a lot of Spanglish going on. People Which think. George clearly disapproves of, I can tell from the tone of his voice. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, I just, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be disapproving, but I'm like, I don't know if that's what someone in Mexico would say. Yeah. But well, it might be something that of... somebody in Texas would say, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so nouns are more readily borrowed than other parts of speech. And then... Going from there, there's sort of a, a broadly applicable hierarchy of morpheme borrowing. So content words, mm. verbs, nouns, adjectives, um, are easiest to borrow. Then function words, prepositions and conjunctions, things like that. An agglutinating affix. And then last are fusional affixes. Mm. And that all makes an intuitive kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, of course, my my favorite language for this sort of thing is Coptic, mm-hmm. which, right, is the last stage of the Egyptian, the native Egyptian language, and has huge, huge, huge amounts of ancient Greek, including two different kinds of conjunctions, right? Ancient Greek mm. has clause initial conjunction, and then they have these post-positive conjunctions and vakarnagal position. Even those got borrowed, mm-hmm. including their behavior, so into Coptic, so... Quite radical borrowings are mm-hmm. possible. They're just less common than just straight up borrowing nouns. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Um, I wonder. I wonder if more words are are being um loan like if more loan words are happening nowadays because of the you know with uh, the world being so interconnected and with computers and all the inventions. But I, would I guess expect the, so. Yeah, but I guess uh, the old, back in the quote unquote old days there were things that maybe they hadn't seen before. Where now you know we've seen it and maybe it's already been in, like uh, absorbed. Well, no, but but technology's not. Lot- Go ahead, George. Yeah, uh, certainly a lot of uh, newer technology terms are being borrowed from English by a bunch of different languages. Yes. But um, even so, technology is not the only thing that's borrowed, right? English has an enormous Japanese and ever-growing Japanese vocabulary being reimported because of things like manga and anime. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's lots mm-hmm. of ways for words to come in. So lots of people now know the word for otaku, a very useful word. Mm-hmm. Yes, and right. um, so so mm-hmm. I mean, there's it doesn't have to just be technologies. It can be these sort of cultural flowings, and it seems like yes, in a highly connected world, there are more opportunities for these borrowings that will require some sort of yeah. word borrowing. Now, here's a quick question on um, so you brought up Japanese, and that makes me think of like katana. We already have the word for sword, but katana is a certain type of sword. Now, is in Japanese is katana just a general word for sword? Do you know, or was does it have still that same meaning when it was brought across? I don't know, but that brings up a next very important point. Someone who knows Japanese better will have to tell us about katana, but the semantic range of a borrowed word is rarely going to match that of the originating language. Mm. Uh So maybe katana is the general word for sword, but here we've taken it to mean a particular kind of design. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite examples from English, and I'm sure everyone hears about this one eventually, is... A bunch of Saxon native Germanic stock words for animals refer to the animal. Mm-hmm. And then the food word comes from French. So we yeah, have, heard of that. right? We have cow, beef, sheep, mutton, pig, pork. Now in French, boeuf is just everything, beef and cow. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, right, you had these poor Saxons who were invaded by Norm- French speaking Vikings, right? <laughs> and the, the, the lords. The lords and ladies use the French words because they're actually eating the cows, pigs, and sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Saxons, the Porsche-mos, are just raising them. <laughs> I mean, that's the story. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's use, useful to distinguish that. The semantic mm-hmm. range of borrowed words may change pretty substantially. Um, yeah. Another good example is in, in, in the English spoken in India, the word gents, you know, like short for gentlemen, mm-hmm. is sex neutral. Huh. So you can, you know, I mean, at least uh, this was true in the 80s. I don't know if that word's still used in sort of colloquial um, Indian English. But, yeah, you could say gents and they could refer to mixed sex groups of people. Now, is that more of a semantic shift or is that like borrowing between dialects going on? It's a borrowing and a reanalysis. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it's the same sort of principle that, that I'm saying here is different semantic field is likely to be involved. Um, one of my favorite examples, one of the things that I love is, uh, when these semantics go on sort of a ping pong between languages. Like, I think I mentioned, uh, karaoke in a, in a, an earlier one. Another one is, uh, this happens with Japanese a lot, apparently. Uh, so the word anime. Mm-hmm. It comes from ultimately English animation. Well, I mm-hmm. guess ultimately from from uh, Latin, but we don't need to go that far back. Um, mm. 
So an animation became Japanese animation and then anime. Uh, I, I'm sorry for my bad Japanese. I don't, I don't do the, 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 um, the pitch accent, but, um, and then anime became English anime, which is a particular style of animation. Right. That comes out of Japan. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and this sort of thing happens with, I mean, it's rampant in any kind of borrowing. I mean, especially when you have, um, these really large cross-cultural movements, either, you know, trade or mm -hmm. religion, right? All sorts of weirdness happens from, you know, first you get to Greek and then Greek to Latin and Latin to all of these local European languages. All sorts of funkiness happened in terms of the semantic range of words being borrowed. Hmm. Now, when a, lang when a word is, is adopted from, you know, another language or when it's kidnapped, whatever you want to call it, um, I'm, I'm curious because this would help maybe if someone's trying to pick up loan words in their conlang. What kind, what makes it, changes it from the way it was to the way it is? Like in Greek, like, um, we have words like, uh, psychology, but in Greek you pronounce the P, right? Right. So that is definitely true. When you borrow a word, it has to be altered to fit the native phonology. Like anime, yes. Jap Jap Japanese doesn't have air, so they probably yeah. say ah. <laughs> Yeah, anime, anime. I, I don't even, I don't know how that word is pronounced. Um, originally. Anime, anime. Yeah. anime. In, in, in uh, any case, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to chunk through. So, um, a really astonishing change. So Navajo is highly resistant to borrowing, but it did do a, a few borrowings. So their word for money is peso, which is from peso, obviously. Mm -hmm. So Spanish. Um, but the word for, um, white folks is related to the word for America, America rather. Which is Biligana. There's no M in Navajo. <laughs> so, and nor is there an R. So, from America, you get Biligana. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that I was, oh, hmm. Right. Does that no, break but, down at all? Or that's just one chunk they took? One chunk they took, the whole chunk. Hmm. Um, but the point is, yes, you might have to make quite substantial changes to the word when it's borrowed, um, if you're going to borrow it that way. Huh. And, and certainly Japanese infamous, right? You hear word and you're like, I have no idea what this means. And then they point out that it's related to an English word. And you're like, oh, and then you can see it. But after it's been through the whole, the, the quite strict rules of Japanese syllable shape, you know, you get a new word out the other end. Yeah. Yeah. We've already mentioned that Chinese has very few loan words. But when you look at the few that there are, a lot of, and a lot of them are like names of places and such. They are very much deformed. Yeah. Like, you know, you end up with, uh, Ireland is Ireland, and then even more, you know, the word for blog is bwoke, stuff like that. <laughs> it gets, and I, I always wonder whether that is maybe one reason that Chinese resists loan words so much, because it's so hard to adapt things phonologically. And, the writing system probably contributes a little bit too. Yeah, I think well, uh, probably the syllable shape thing is the overriding issue. But yeah, um, I have no doubt that syllable shapes probably constrain this somewhat. I don't know if anyone's done a study to actually point out what does. I mean, at the same time, Japanese syllable structure is also very strict, and yet they have no, they just have a great time. Yeah, it's interesting. Borrowing mm -hmm. words. So, I mean, that may be an issue, but it's clearly not overwhelming. 
Yeah, Japanese is is one. It has a lot of those uh, loan words, and I was recently um, looking at Japanese, and I saw like sometimes they're very obvious what it's from, like sandoichi or pen or uh, you know juice. But then uh, you get words like isha for doctor, and I'm knowing Chinese, I presume that comes from isheng, or um, you get I can see some or whatever the old one old yeah, yeah version of or whatever is. the old common node was, or like ocha in Chinese tea is you know cha. Um, you heard Ucha, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's interesting just to see the range of um, how much has changed from, you know, where it came from. Yeah. So, um, but as far as conlanging goes, I think it's good to see that this does happen in natlangs. I know some people sometimes I, I I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do you know just be relaxing and just taking words, but you know it happens in natlangs and sometimes they are more resemblant of the language they came from and sometimes they're completely you know unre- they look un- completely unrelated after all the changes go through yeah yeah um i think it you might also want to make sure uh, to uh remember that um a lot of times loan words can be reanalyzed so we were talking about arabic loans a lot of mm-hmm. words Arabic words that are in English or in European languages in, are in general are look sort of uh, similar because they all have that al at the beginning. That's what the definite article in Arabic yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. got smashed onto the word and we just consider it part of the word. So in, in alchemy and alcohol and algebra that that we just like smash that on because I think Partly because, if I understand correctly, the definite article is used all the time in Arabic, right? It's really... Yeah, yeah they use a lot. Yeah, as much as in English. Mm-hmm. Okay. but um, And sometimes they can go in really bizarre directions because, like, um, alligator. This is not an Arabic word. This is a Spanish loan word. Yeah. And it came from el lagarto. Mm-hmm. literally lizard the lizard uh-huh. Uh-huh. so uh-huh. somehow we smash the article onto it and then completely change the pronunciation <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean another diffi- the, another reason for the definite article to stay is in front of a bunch of consonants the l assimilates mhm um and turns into something else so yeah yeah um so another kind of loan word of ultimately is a calc. Mm. Yes. C-A-L-Q-U-E. And that is when you translate an idiom into your native language. The classic example is the phrase piece of cake in English refers to something that's very easy. But if you said, you know, a piece of cake literally in, you know, Einstuckkäse in German, then that makes no sense, right? That means something that you eat. Um, but Wait, this what? is still what George? I thought of calcs as, like, literally translating compounds. Compounds, idioms, whatever. It's the, it's the same. It's the broad okay. category of taking something that has complex meaning because it has multiple words and just taking the words um, without necessarily yeah. the sense coming over. So it could be an idiom. It could be a compound. Um, so the, a classic compound is the word for skyscraper in English. And sometimes some varieties of Spanish have rascacielos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, right. Skyscrapers. So they've translated that 
idiomatic compound into their own language. They've not borrowed it in the sense that the lexical items have never been borrowed, but they've taken the senses and borrowed them in for the same meaning. Another process that can happen is like, I think, is it back formation where, for example, like a cheeseburger where they had a hamburger and they took off the ham, but ham wasn't really part of where the word came from. Right. Sure. Reanalysis is definitely possible if the word looks at all native. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. I mean, that happened to English, right? We borrowed the word orange, but it came from Spanish, which was (laughs) naranja. And we decided that an orange had to become a you know, an space orange, right? We lost the N as, and that was a process that happened to other English words. So yes, <laughs> reanalysis, morphological reanalysis, grammatical reanalysis at various levels can happen once a word's been borrowed. Like I told you about this a, a, a few months ago, right? The Arabic language just borrowed the word for film, film, hmm. but it has three consonants and it's a common Arabic word shape. So the plural of film in Arabic is a flam. Yes. <laughs> Right? So, again, <laughs> it fits, so treat it like native, or it becomes amenable <laughs> to being treated that way. One thing I think is interesting is, like, how often do grammatical forms from the other language uh, sort of uh, get borrowed along with it? Because I know that in English, a lot of times, if it's if it's a Latin word, we may borrow the plural or pretend that the plural is right. is one of the e plurals if it's not uh yeah that, that really depends. Of, yeah and then a lot of our loan words have zero plurals like um like the samurai has is a zero plural usually right. things like mm-hmm. that um but the ninja it can be ninjas it's <laughs> um, even yeah. a verb he ninja the thing away yeah, so right. So that, no, ninja is a great word. It's something we borrowed from Japanese and then run with it, and it's been turned into a verb. And it means also, I mean, right, means posting before somebody. So, I mean, this is how <laughs> loan words work. It's, it's, it's great. Fun. It's great. Um, uh-huh. What was I going to say about it? Yeah, so Persian, obviously, after, um, after the Persian Empire converted to Islam, after being invaded, there's a huge amount of Arabic. And it's, it's just a disaster because if you want to learn Persian, you also have to learn a bunch of irregular Arabic plurals. Hmm. But you never know when it's going to take a, a normal, an Arabic plural or if it's going to just use a native plural. So one example is Talib means scholar, but that word was borrowed into Persian, kept its a normal Persian plural, so Taliban. Mm-hmm. Oh. Right? So I don't even remember what the proper Arabic plural for that is. But right. So Something many things can that. happen. It can mix, mix and match. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I, and it's really, I really entertaining in Coptic. Really? <laughs> oh yes. Um, that's but that's that seems like an important thing, and uh, like on other things would be like if your language has gender, what gender will the loan words adopt? It may be I, it may be based on the sound of the word, or it may be just like I think Spanish usually defaults to making them masculine, or mm-hmm. it may even be that they're familiar enough with the other language uh, that if both have gender, then they'll use the gender that it has in the other language. I think a lot of this depends on the level of familiarity between the two languages. If there are a lot of bilingual speakers then you may get more sort of grammatical bleed over. I I think that's right. So uh, Coptic has this vast amount of borrow, but that's because 
large chop chunks of ancient Egypt were Greek speaking. I mean, it's huge, mm-hmm. huge number of Greek speakers. So lots of things got borrowed. Um, Coptics um, has the standard um, Afro-Asiatic gender system, which is basically just masculine and feminine. So Greek words, if they were masculine or feminine, typically kept their original gender. Mm-hmm. And then Greek neuters, I forget. I think most of those fell into masculine, but I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically they did not keep Greek plurals. They just followed the normal Coptic. I think even in a... In English, I think the word for gyro, I was just looking this the other day, like gyro actually has an S on the end, but in English that S is usually seen as plural. So instead of saying like gyros or gyros for a singular, we just say one gyro and yeah, they would, yeah, gyros. Gyro, that just makes my teeth itch, but okay. Gyro. <laughs> gyro, thank you. Yes, gyros. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, plural see, George, 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 when you learn, when you move to Madison, you will learn about gyros fry. So that's good. Um Uh, What was I going to say? And then another thing that can happen in these borrowings is you can get a funny kind of mix and match, kind of a half calc. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite examples from Navajo is they typically, they borrowed the English word for God, but it is usually accompanied by the Navajo word for holy. So it's D and God (laughs) is is, is usually, I mean, often how that word is said. So I really think that religious terminology I don't know numbers, but, well, actually we have numbers, but it seems to me like religious terminology would be very likely to be, uh, loaned, and this, this thing seems to agree with me, your site seems to agree with me. Right. Uh, a little bit, because when a different culture brings a different religion in, a lot of those concepts are going to be alien to the local population, so they may need to borrow. I know that where they have been translated in Chinese, where mm-hmm. they've translated, you know, words, they come out really weird because, you know, they, they grab native concepts that are kind of similar and it sounds weird. And uh, mm-hmm. the same thing goes in the other direction, like, we call the the Chinese underworld world hell, even though it's not really hell. It's just sort of a generic where everybody goes. Sure, and I mean the Greeks and the Romans were in the habit of referring to all of the local deities by whichever Latin or Greek name closely most closely matched. Yeah, right. We'll just call him Neptune. It's not really anything like Neptune, but it was you know a god of water, therefore Neptune. Now, um, yeah. did. The, among the languages of the Native Native American languages, did they borrow from each other? Uh, sometimes. A, a little, sure. I mean, there was a, a great deal of people mm, moving around. So we have a lot of the sort of borrowing of local flora and fauna and mm-hmm. local agricultural um, technology terms. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that's an entire show all by itself. There's all sorts of interesting borrowing patterns and uh, sometimes, um, people, there's, a, the Pacific Northwest is very rich linguistically and rich culturally and rich in the same sort of way that I don't know. Um, Europe during the great game was interesting. There was a lot of fighting going along and there's a lot of, um, a lot of people who think their kind of people are better than all of the other kind of people. Ah. So they make fun of each other in funny ways that are often very linguistically sophisticated. <laughs> And involves think, requiring requires that you know other languages. 
in the area. I think one last thing that I want to mention, and maybe I should find uh, a link for this or something, but there are, well, a couple things. One is you can't, most of the time, loan words are just single words, um, but you can borrow entire phrases. One of my uh, sort of favorites to think about and play around it is uh, uh, sort of sort of like art critics and stuff uh, may use the French word, the French phrase je ne sais quoi, which mm. literally just means I don't know what. Right. Has a certain to, I don't know what. Right. And yeah, this is to, this is this is because of French's role as a language of, of um, sort of academics and intellectual. Yes. Um, and that's becoming less common, I think, to use those phrases. I, I always have fun with whenever I hear those terms, I translate them into Spanish just for, just for, <laughs> for, uh, for giggles. It's a lot funnier when you say it has a certain no se que. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's, it's, I like that though. That's a nice little perversion of the use of that. Right. I mean, most people consider that, especially in America, we consider that very pretentious. To, yes. to use um, that French with the French pronunciation of this phrase out of nowhere. And this is the same thing as Cato's problem with ancient Greek, right? It just rubbed him the wrong way. Um, there was a really strange movement in Athens for a while during the height of its wealth where suddenly all of the young men, the fashionable young men, were wandering around with parasols and dressing like people from some city in the Levant. Mm-hmm. And that involved one or two linguistic features that were mocked and made fun of as well. So you're right. The, the borrowing might be very um, conspicuous and obvious to the culture that's borrowing. And some people may object strenuously. So there's a, an interesting, I mean, especially if you're a literary conling, you're right. You're writing books that have these conlangs in them. Um, mm-hmm. People using these words becomes an interesting avenue for sort of character development. Like who would use the borrowed language and who would not be seen dead using the borrowed language. Now, yeah. oh, I'm trying to think of like, uh, for like, you know, a lot of cooking terms come from Latin or not Latin, Italian and French, you know, like right. al dente or, you know, this is souffle. But uh-huh. I wonder if someone were resisting yeah. that. Like, I imagine like someone who either just didn't know the fancy term for it, but, you know, I like my pasta real nice and chewy. Like, you know, yeah, well, they're like, you know. Now, well, souffle, there's nothing like it in, in the English cooking tradition. You have to borrow it because that, that's the only, there's nothing like it. I mean, I suppose you could call it a pudding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 a different kind of thing. Um, I, I, I consider that effectively a technology borrowing. Um, mm, it is associated yeah. with with a sort of aristocratic culture, but it's still basically a technology issue. Yeah. Sometimes I think those borrowings are meant to you know accentuate that difference between maybe social class. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of not a lot, a good chunk of Arabic vocabulary for food comes from Persian. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Arabic and Persian have been borrowing from each other both ways um, mm-hmm. for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generally specialized vocabulary uh, is likely to get borrowed or borrowings are likely to become specialized terms in the borrowing language. Like, you know, we have all these uh, Italian terms in music yes. uh, for for different tempos and different... You know, the, the dynamics, forte piano, fortissimo pianissimo. Crescendo. Yeah. yeah. Yes, crescendo, yes. And, uh, I don't, uh, don't ask me why I pronounce those as Italian, but I do. Um, anyway, 
So those some a lot of those words like forte and piano, that's just loud and soft, but we use it for the specific meaning of loud and soft in musical sort of notation and the the dynamics. So we have so that's one thing I think is very common is uh what is that called? Uh hypo what's what's it called when uh a word narrows in meaning? I don't know. I forget the term for it. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, right. Um, this is, a, yeah, those are definitely a good example where, right, forte probably just means loud, or even strong, it doesn't yeah. even mean loud. It means strong and a whole bunch of meanings. And the single meaning that has been borrowed into English, um, in the musical context is, is just loud. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, we have also a noun that, you know, that says something may or may not be someone's forte. I don't know if that comes from English or uh, Italian or French. Anyway, so, and I mean, we're talking about all of these very specific technical words, but a lot of very bad may also be borrowed. Chicken, turnip, <laughs> um, soap, table, rice. I'm, I'm looking at a list here of things. Guacamole, well, right. I mean, quite general words can be borrowed in time. So uh, um, in in Australia, linguists are pulling out their hair and going insane because many of the cultures have taboo avoidance processes where when someone dies, you can't say their name or and certain words that may sound too much like their name will also be avoided. So suddenly, very common words can no longer be said, including pronouns sometimes. Um, So you have to come up with some way around. So either you come up with some circumlocution or you borrow the word from a neighboring language. (laughs) And it might take over. And it may never come back. So that makes the, you know, tracing historical linguistics in Australia very entertaining. Mm. (laughs) Um, Because there's a huge amount of borrowing going on uh, Um, for, for social reasons. The other thing that I I wanted to mention is occasionally I I think this probably happens more often with languages that people are very familiar with is you actually end up constructing something in the other language that is not exactly idiomatic in the other language and then getting it uh the example that I've heard is um double entendre or uh, double entendre as I said right uh, yeah which in French you would not say double entendre as I understand it our our French speaking listeners may may correct me but uh, I believe in French you would probably refer to something you you would uh, generally refer to something like that as double significant or something like that but not double entendre double it's a vocalic L. Not, it's not Spanish. It's a vocalic L. Double. Double and tendre. Hey, thank you. I had a friend in college who, wants, uh, who was from India who wanted to know what a single entendre was. <laughs> Which is an excellent question that I will leave our listeners to decide for themselves what the answer to that is. Um, but the main point is that we didn't even borrow the phrase from French. We borrowed the French words and constructed the phrase that wouldn't occur in French. <laughs> well, please remember that French had a long life in the British Isles, separated from France, but still being spoken by native speakers. So they sort of went on their own. I mean, Norman French kind of went on its own for a while. I mean, there was definitely communication between, right? It's just the cliffs of Dover, right? It's easy to get across. Um but, I mean, remember that as well. A lot of quite strange um, English 
legal vocabulary that looks like French is probably not recognizable to people from France either, but that has to do with developments in the British Isles um, of the French language. Uh, okay. So it may, it may be something that, uh, the Normans were likely to say, but modern French people are not that likely to say. Right. I don't know, but th it's just an example that people give, but I think it seems likely that kind of thing can happen pretty often. I don't know. I think in situations where you have a prestige foreign language that is constantly injecting new vocabulary into language, you might get more of that, I would expect. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've talked about phonological adaptation and um, we've talked about changing meanings. Um, one, th one thing I want to mention really quick is like sometimes the changing in meaning can be really hilarious. Like, um, a lot of young Chinese use the English word high to mean like great or awesome or really, you know, up there, which mm -hmm. comes can across. We, can that really... apply to people? Yes. So you can say that my teacher's high. <laughs> yes. Or, awesome. or it can also mean, uh, like feeling, uh, really happy. So like I'm, I'm really high. Right. So that's a, cog a common cognitive metaphor in in Chinese is for elevation to be in a good happy mood. Actually that's a very common human one. So I'm really high. I mean that's probably what the word originally meant in English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like game and happy. <laughs> well that we can talk about that word some other time. It has all sorts of fun additional meanings and it has for a long time. But mm. yeah. Uh yeah, yeah, words no, that's nice. but, but again, yeah, when they're borrowed they take on their own meaning. I especially like, yeah, I mean internet English must mean that very strange vocabulary items are entering languages all over this planet with very peculiar significances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oddly enough, a lot of text speak that I see is not so much English loans, but sort of things in a different language. Because I've, I've, I've seen Spanish text speak and I've seen uh, Chinese text speak, and it's not really loan words, except I know that a lot of Spanish speakers write the word que as a K. Yes. Which is funny because the Spanish name for that letter is ca. So. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. In, uh, <laughs> I've heard of something like that in Chinese, actually. Like, um, and I think it's an internet thing, but I've seen people write three Q. Do you have any idea what that means? Thank you. No. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Oh, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I mean, we could probably do many episodes about the wildness of internet speak, but I mean, that's taking us a little, I mean, it's relevant in the sense that, you know, maybe even if you don't have the internet, you can use that as an inspiration for conlang borrowing behavior because it's sort of like a hothouse environment. Yes. Um, for borrowing with strange yeah. lexical shifts. Mm -hmm. I think the thing is that a lot of, there's some art langers that do modern conlangs but i think a lot of the 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 sort of art langers that we're talking to are not really interested in modern language yeah um, can some of cuz some of them are making con worlds that are like in fantasy worlds that don't have mm -hmm. the internet they're but, very far you know, if you Mars, yeah. but uh if you do have uh a culture that's set in the real world or in a world that has an an internet then you know it's something to to have, and even if not, um, 
the a lot of these things like this this chat speak kind of stuff and stuff that's not like necessarily a new thing it's just something we associated with the internet now but there was all sorts of stuff that happened when telegraphs came out and even mm-hmm. before that there were just uh, sort of uh writers and people who who would just like for no reason just make really weird abbreviations mm-hmm. well they had reasons i mean it's it's true that a lot of this isn't new per se, but the quantity is definitely new because we have very widespread literacy, highly connected, um, which is really speeding up processes. So a lot of borrowing happens at a slower pace unless there's some sort of revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Is there anything else we need to say about borrowing? I think we've uh, strictly covered it. <laughs> sense of that. No, I, I'm gonna. Uh, I, I was about to wrap it up. So, and say, you know, this is another subject that William thought we wouldn't get that much about, but we've talked <laughs> quite a bit about it. And this yeah, may be a I long should, episode. I should um, just give up. All, like, all but, episodes will be long from now on. <laughs> but we do need to move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to talk about our featured conlang, which is Kebreni. Yes. By... Yeah. Zompist himself. Well, I tried to get Zompist on the uh, podcast, but it is... Uh, he had a it's, family it's, emergency. Yeah, mm-hmm. he had an emergency and, uh, of course, there was there was all the uh, confusion over the over over whether we were going to even have it on Sunday anyway, and uh, so... And he's very hard to convince to get on a podcast in the first place. So, uh... I hope that I can have him on sometime in the future, but for now, we're just going to have to do without him and talk about his language. Yep. Right. So, um, Cabrani. I picked this and recommended it because this is the language that he uses in the print version of the language construction kit. Which I didn't okay. know there was a print version. I mean, There I, is a print version. It's I mean, much, much larger than the online version. Ooh. Yes. Okay. Um... Get get it on uh, Amazon. There's um, both the print and Kindle version, but mm. it's uh, I have not read all the way through it yet. I just like read bits and pieces of it. So. I think, for, especially for someone who has is either long past their college days or is unlikely to go to college and to take linguistics courses, for a beginner conlanger, I actually think it's worth buying this book. I mean, sometimes he. I don't agree with everything he says, but in terms of just a general across the board linguistics education for a very reasonable price, I think it's, it's hard to beat um, the print mm-hmm. version of the language construction. It's certainly cheaper and just as informative as many a linguistics textbook. Mm. Yes. Um, the only thing that is different is it doesn't have homework. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, I wonder if somebody could do like uh, – uh, there's people who do conlanging courses that are sort of intro to linguistics that with conlang involved. I wonder if somebody could actually do that and assign the language construction kit as one of the textbooks. That would be that kind would be of interesting. Awesome that. And that'd be, uh, um, that might be a little too experimental for universities outside of California, but uh, it yeah. could be. <laughs> um, it could be but let's talk a little bit about this language. Looking at the phonology. Um, not that much. It 
to say it does have its Paddle you know voicing distinction and it has uh these awesome sounds that I I know from Chinese uh, the the sound um which he calls dorso prepalatal fricative mm. I'm not sure if that's the name that I usually say that three times fast <laughs> it has s and it also has uh sh- sh- what s sh sh yeah so that's a little uh wacky to try to get that distinguish yes s sh sh but um and what does it what is the what does the y represent middle I'm guessing, hmm? It's, it's, it's just, um, a, it's just a mid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's that Turkish thing. Um, so, the strangest, are we still, no, I'll let you finish on the phonology. Oh, no, no, no. I'm moving on. Okay. So the far strangest thing about this language, which is otherwise reasonably straightforward, um, is that it has, Non-concatenative morphology in its verbs. Yes, I was looking you, at that. You have, you have a consonantal core and then vowels dance frantically around those, <laughs> um, in various ways about, I don't know, a sixth down the page defining the language. He has all of the different forms that can occur for the verb to see. Jeez. Uh, which is kanu and Right, so from, from Kanu you get Kuna and Agenu and Karunu and Agarunu and Kuna and um, Agaunte and all sorts of fun stuff, um, yeah. which makes my brain wow. hurt a little bit. Yeah, um, and, and there are different patterns like, having to do with the vowel like locations. He, he has a few, um, what's the word again, substituted um, suppletion forms as well, but it's a lot of... But a lot of it seems to be this sort of vowel vowel changing operation. Where are you seeing suppletion? Are you sure you're seeing suppletion and not just simply voicing changes? Because that can happen too. Oh no, I'm not seeing suppletion. I'm I'm stupid while looking at this chart and looking at the other verbs. I'm okay, scared. that's the problem. Right. Um, in terms of what's encoded in the verb, you've got aspect, which is dead simple. Mm. Perfective, imperfective. Yay, easy. Mm-hmm. Um, politeness is encoded in the verb. Mm-hmm. Volition, which is very interesting, um, which has to do whether you did something intentionally or non-intentionally. I'm used to linguists calling this control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then effect which has to do with um, the relationship of the speaker to the event. So we basically have a benefactive inflection and a malefactive inflection. Was it to my benefit or to my harm that something happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have to mix and match these to, oh, and you have an infix you can use to indicate that the action was performed to the harm of the listener. Nice. I would think that with this kind of... Uh, you said non-concatenative morphology. Is that what mm-hmm. it was? I would imagine that there would be a lot of words that would kind of like crash into each other in their in their uh, when they get declined out or well when they get conjugated out. Like, 
I would just when I get nervous when I have when I think about switching vowels because then I'm like, but but then it'll cross this one and that's what that <laughs> one will be. And and it's like like five roads coming together and it's like, oh no, who's gonna come out where? Content. Right. So this is how you feel and how I feel, but I'm guessing a speaker of Arabic is like, yeah, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, when you have stuff like this, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like in Arabic, what? It's just that the consonants are what holds the meaning, right? Yeah, I don't know like, if there's yeah. necessarily more collisions, are there? No. I think it's a whole um, different set of meanings, and I, not meanings, but a whole different like paradigm of thinking, so to speak, because I'm, you know, as an English speaker, and I've never studied a language with that triconsonantal root. I'm, 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 I think of a essential meaning being in one morpheme that's in one central place. Perhaps if you were, you know, if you grew up with a language like this, or if your whole conlang were structured like this, it would evolve so that it wouldn't, it would be unambiguous because, you know, some of them are just affixes and some of them are, um, part of the triconsonant root. Um, yeah. yeah, no, they make it work. It's, it's fine. It's, like I said, it is a little bit alarming to a speaker of English when, especially for most speakers of European languages, when the front end of a word starts changing, we get very upset. Yeah, I like doing that. <laughs> that was that was the first time I encountered the first times, especially when I was younger, when I first thought, "Oh, Navajo might be interesting," and it just sent me away screaming mm-hmm. down the aisles of the library because mm-hmm. um, I was, you know, looking at a simple conjugation, and when I did not fully realize that the root was at the end, and I'm seeing all of these insane changes at the front, I'm like, "Oh my god!" Um, but really, people speak these languages, and it's fine without it. Being I, I really want to you. Do a language with this non-concatenative morphology to try it out because it sounds really interesting and like a great way to really yeah. have a lot of derived words come from it. Now, talking about the politeness, it looks like he's kind of gotten crazy with the the politeness in that he has politeness on verbs, uh, and he also has uh, his pronouns have pejorative, ordinary, and deferential forms. George, uh, first person does not have a deferential. Obviously, that's kind of pointless to have that. Although I think, you know, you could have some culture where you would have a polite first person for the king or something. But, uh, and, um, looking at it, I was surprised that second person had no singular plural distinctions. I don't know why, but that that kind of strikes me as odd, considering most conlangers are like happy to do that, and it seems more common, doesn't it? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's just a my. It's just a really little thing. It's not like it's it's anything that will that. It's not that surprising. I mean, it's, but it's just like tiny little thing that I noticed. Um, well, I mean, if you've already got a polite language, you might get politeness inflation where you start using, I mean, the, for some reason, using plurals to indicate polite, to represent politeness to a single second person is common even outside of Europe. Well, I don't know if it's common, but it occurs even outside of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good way to lose one of your second person pronouns. Mm. And since th- this language, this culture seems preoccupied with that, then that's a route for that to happen. Yeah, possibly. Um, um Honestly, that's the far the strangest thing about this language, in my yeah, there's opinion. There's not much, much. There's not much odd about the language. I mean, at least in terms of morphology, that's the oddest thing going on. Um, there's no case um, marking. I I I like interestingly. Uh, 
he, I got to his numbers and he derives a lot of his numbers from different things like, um, so one is related to this, two is related to that, hmm. uh, four, uh, what, yakash, yakash, or No, that's, that's a rakash. So he's got derived forms, right? So he's giving the proto-language forms yeah. first, which is, you know, Five what happens hands, at Zompas, of course. Right. Um, and uh, oddly enough, 18 is entire man. That's kind of... Well, that's because the that's because the physiology of these people in this world have only eight toes. Hmm. Oh, okay. I see. Ten fingers, so, eight toes. They have some bizarre counting system because of that. <laughs> yes. Well, bizarre um, by human standards, but they're not humans. So there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he, then he's got his section on derivational morphology. This is all straightforward, and I don't see anything really remarkably weird there. I like how much he uses the subordinator attributive marker Tay. It's used mm-hmm. for things like relative clauses. It's used for coercing nouns into adjectives. All sorts of fun stuff. He makes he gets a lot of use out of one chunk of grammar, which I approve of strongly. Uh-huh. Now, um, he mentions Metayun. Is that the that the proto language? Okay, I wasn't sure if that was the sister language or the the parent. No, parent. Hmm. And then there is borrowings, kind of mentioned, like we were talking about in the loan words. He mentions borrowings uh, into. Ismail. Yeah, actually, I mean, this is relevant to our topic today, and I didn't think about that, is mm-hmm. um, this language in his con world provides a huge amount of loaned vocabulary into the Ismail language. And it's cool because, like he mentions, like uh, the Gibrani uh, borrowed from Verdurian for technological terms, cultural terms, religious terms, grammatical terms. It's right there. It's yep. really cool. Uh-huh. It's like about a little more than halfway down, a little shaft, two thirds. Um, and he gives the, the different shapes that happened when they were borrowed. So you can see examples of that going on as well. Very cool. I approve. <laughs> uh, I love his example sentences, which mm-hmm. some of them are rude and we can't read on radio, but this mm-hmm. one is funny because I lost the mortgage document. The bank is whining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I really like the, 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 this thing. This language is not as highly developed as some of his, but it has a, you know, it's, it's a very approachable one for beginners who would like to see something that's, it's got one or two truly strange and unusual features, the, the morphology for the verb and the subordinating te, which is just great and relativizing te. Um, but other than that, it shouldn't have anything that will completely blow your brains out. Although the number of sibilants or fricatives is quite astonishing. Yeah, is, I'm sorry, is that sound in the background? Can you, is that coming yes, through? I can hear that. I'm sorry. Uh, my family apparently doesn't understand what I mean by quiet. <laughs> and you can tell it's the summer because everybody's home. Hooray. Uh, but oh. I'm sorry about that. This is interesting. Kima. Madness, it's godded, i.e. possession by God. Yep. That's awesome. Um, looking here, I'm trying to see. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, I think I've said what I want to say about it. I mean, it's a cute little language. It's digestible. It's all here. He always gives examples. That's one, I mean, I, 
there's very little really big scary morphology, so you don't need a super complex yeah. uh, interlinear. So, no, this is a nice and approachable one with some interesting stuff without being overwhelmingly strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that? Nothing. What was <laughs> what? Me stretching. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Anything else we want to say about Kebrani? I don't know. I say just kind of look through it. Take yeah, look. it looks really interesting. Uh, Zampa's languages are always very nicely presented web page uh, grammars. There. Yes, yeah. so it's very nice. It's always it's always good to just kind of look through it. Um, uh, I do want to mention, I didn't mention the script, but the script seems somewhat realistic, except there's a little bit, a few characters that seem a little bit too close to each other that I'm like, well, it's probably better than Elvish. Yeah. There's two uh, in particular that I think are too close. It's like, um, the... S and Z, I don't know what sounds those represent. What are they? Is it just Z? Yeah. That one of them is like adding basically a serif onto it. I'm like, I no. Don't... It's if look look at Sh and Sh. He's got a voicing diacritic available for certain sounds. But you know, even English oh, has some that... stuff like that. Oh, like capital okay. E and capital F, or you know, T and L, or I and like yeah. one or capital I lowercase L. I mean, we have it in natural languages, too. Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, then it's not... And Chinese, forget about it. Think about Chinese. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> I, I, I was just taking taking a look at it. Um, I guess it's not... I guess if if it's that particular regular diacritic, it's, that's, then it's not as surprising as I thought it would be, but... Uh, it's those two forms still look very similar to me. Um, I would say that, um, uh, the one other note is he has sort of a direct phoneme to grapheme thing, which is a little bit boring, but you know, that's just something that happens. Um, uh, well, uh, my get well, within the context of his con world, we have lots of people borrow the writing system of another group. Yeah. So just like all of the, the modern languages of Papua New Guinea all have very regular orthographies because they're borrowing, they're adopting a writing system late. I, I think in the context of the con world, many of them are borrowing the Verdurian writing system, and so it's going to be pretty regular. Yeah, it could, it, it could be that it's supposed to be a recent borrowing. Now, if, there, if, one lang- if a language borrows a writing system... I would think that sometimes that would lead to not so regular of a writing of it because it might use, you know, digraphs or trigraphs to represent sounds that it, that that language from which it's borrowing may not have. Right. That's why we have the tilde diacritic for voicing. I'm yeah. just saying that's what, that, that what, that's what might, um, make it diverge from being as clear as, I don't know, maybe as each sound being so different as you'd like. Right. On the one hand, we got Irish. Oh my gosh, Irish. Right, which is what happened when Romans tried to write down. Yeah, so that, yeah, and you know that's true. It doesn't always have to be regular, but sometimes if you can, if you've got scholars worrying about things, you might get something regular if it's not too divergent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a major thing, in, and it, it could be that it's just 
completely regular. So, but I think that's about all we can really say say about Cabrini, except yeah, go take a look at it. It's neat, and um, and uh, see what you can glean from it. Uh, it's got some interesting stuff going on. Uh, so um, we want to move on to feedback. Sure, sounds fine to me. So we got an email from Michael from California. And he says, Saluton. I'm not sure what language that is and how I should that, pronounce that. Esperanto? It's, it's Esperanto, and it's supposed to be pronounced Saluton. It's not Saluton, French. Okay. Unless you're, uh, unless you're, um, William Shatner and you do that with all your French and Esperanto. Yeah, well, that's. Saluton, just, okay. Yes. Um, a friend just posted this on my Facebook wall, a list of measure words in English, everything from murder of crows, to a stand of flamingos, to a blessing of unicorns, because it's Unicorn Appreciation Day, of course. And even some obviously contrived creations like a brace of dentists. Uh, now I wonder what the measure word for conlangers would be. So it's this is a fun little thing. It's, um, it's collective nouns in English, and... Um, yeah, I don't know how many of these are in general usage. I know that murder of crows is something that's used at least in in certain registers, but you yes. know. I will always remember once when I was a, a kid or a teenager and my sister looked out the window and saw some high school boys wandering by. She said, "Look, it's a flock of dudes." <laughs> So, for me, dudes come in a flock. <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of sort of fun stuff. A chine of polecats? I think a postulation of conlangers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it fits. I don't know. That's my two yeah. cents. Yeah. Okay. I mean, some get used, right? Like, a ream of paper makes yeah, sense. Yeah, a ream of paper. Um, and a rope of onions makes sense. I don't know how often you're going to use that unless you grow onions. I mean, a lot of these, I hesitate to call these measure words because they simply, they're words for a group, but we don't I think say they're collectives. they're collectives. Yeah, they're not, they're definitely not measure words. Yeah. And some people like well, to compare these to measure words, which they're really not. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't say, right. What's, I what's think if it were, like, maybe if you, when you say one cup of milk, that's more like a measure word. But when yeah. you say five, five murders of swan, five murders of crows, you don't mean five individual crows. You mean five groups or five collectives right. of crows. Right. So. right. But why would Although the you, idea of, of would... five murders of, of, um, never mind. Lost it. I don't know if, I don't know if you would say five murders of crows, though. I think you, I think. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think. A murder of crows is just like a one big collection of crows. It's like an uncountable see. mass. Yeah, I, I was just I thinking perhaps if you if you were showing you know a murder of crows in England and a murder of crows in Asia and a murder of crows in in Iceland, <laughs> then you say look at the look, compare the murders of crows. Three murders of crows. I don't know. I was just working with it. <laughs> That's maybe if you had pictures, yeah. Okay, know. this is a smart alecky. A conjunction of grammarians. A conjunction of grammarians. Hmm. Uh, I saw hmm. a uh, a superfluidity of nuns. No, that makes superfluidity. 
A super That's... super fluid super fluidity of nuns. That should be a super fluidity of <laughs> physicists. No. <laughs> Superfluity yeah. of nuns. Sorry. All right. Is that like superfluity? Well, no. It's super, superfluity. Superfluity. I I don't know. I don't like that I word. Guess I guess somebody thinks they're superfluous. Yeah. Anyway. Or superfluous. A woman. A gang of workmen. Yeah. That's all right. We I don't need to read them all. People can visit the page yeah. and yeah, be just amused look or at horrified the page on their own. And understand that some of these I don't think are that. Uh, what the heck? A talk of Kaper Kylie's. I now, don't know here, what that means, but I want to. Now, here's a question and application. Um, do other languages have the same kind of collective? Like in Spanish, I don't know if I know these words. Um, and I don't know if you'd want your conlang to go with it. I mean, it's an interesting idea, but I don't know how many natlangs have these kind of collective terms. Well, no idea. I'm sure that a lot of them do. Because everybody has sort of collective nouns and stuff, but, um, or uncountable quantities to, to express, but I don't know if anyone, any language really goes to the lengths that are, are, are shown in this document in normal everyday speech. I think Esperanto has an infix where you can make something like that. Like, arbaro is not like forest, like a group of trees. Yeah, but that just means, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's similar, that, but that's uh, but that's typically lexical, right? It doesn't mean a group of trees; it means a forest. True. I mean, I was just trying to think of something else that a another language didn't. I suppose you could do some sort of suffix and uh, derive another term from that noun. Yeah, but yeah, I guess you can. Yeah. Just food for thought. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think we can wrap this up, and we'll say. Uh, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Nope, not this time. Uh, Mike? Um, nope, just keep practicing, trying new things, and don't be afraid, and all that, and yay, conlanging, and keep going with it. Keep it up, <laughs> that's what I want to say. Keep going with it. Never give up, never surrender. Alright. Alright, and I'm gonna say, happy conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that's really odd. It's really mafan. So it was. It's just mafan to like mafan to la. Huh. So how was uh how was it without power? What was it like? Um, crazy. Hmm. Like, is it was well, there? A I big... worked at a gas station and uh-huh. uh, we almost ran out of gas. Oh my.
Why is that? Well, just a bunch of people were getting gas. gas. And <laughs> also, um, we lost a large portion of our food. And, like, you, it was it was misplaced or it was spoiled? Yeah, because the coolers stopped working and such. That's, mm-hmm. that's how it worked. Hello, how are you? Dying of the heat! How are huh. you? Um, <laughs> make, <laughs> making do with my cell phone because my computer apparently is too, can't make it onto the internet because of, I don't know, it's not feeling it or whatever. I don't know what. It's not feeling it? <clears throat> Yeah, because it says it doesn't. It just says Internet Explorer cannot display the web page, but it shows that I have limited connectivity, and it shows that it, you know, has four out of five receptivity bars or whatever it's called. So, at least I can get on Wi-Fi with my phone, so I'm not using up my um, my data right now. So on Thursday, the high temperature that they're predicting for here is 104. <laughs> oh my! That does not happen here. I think it's actually more that my little brother's home and my stepmom's home and everybody's on the computers here and my computer is like, oh no, other people, other people, oh no. <laughs> and it's it sulking. It doesn't play well with others. It's like an email computer or something. All right. So well. I had I had a I had a great day yesterday. I had family visiting and my mom who spent some time in China, and my sister both like spicy and interesting food, so I took the horde to a Sichuan restaurant. Mm-hmm. And my nephew, who's an adult now, but when he was a kid and he came to my house, he once told my sister that I needed to have kids. And she thought that they'd already had the gay talk with him, so they're like, why, Damien, does William have to have kids? And he felt that if I had kids, I would get a TV and cook American food. <laughs> Because that's but, what's making you not do it now. But now that an adult, he willingly <laughs> ate squids and bok choy, and I even he said, "I've never had duck." I'm like, "Then let's order some duck." So there was duck, and he ate right. it, and it was good. Yeah, <clears throat> Sichuan. Of course, uh, the really spicy stuff is from Hunan. Oh, that's hilarious! What I I see it come up, but the sidebar does not give you a color code, so it <laughs> doesn't it doesn't know. You are a ghost, a phantom in the. The ghost of the machine. Okay. Um, I know that we're in a, hor- a hurry, and it's going. it's been in the 90s all week, and it will continue to be in the 90s. I don't think it's ever going to rain in Madison again. Oh, man. A Kindle of okay. kittens? That's hilarious. All right. Anyway. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm like, outside now, and I've for the past, like, five minutes or ten minutes, I've been working with the mute button to m- try to avoid the cars going by. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like fro- like like acoustic Frogger when I see here one coming, I gotta like find the mute button and make sure I don't hit the disconnect button. But acoustic um, Frogger, that's gonna be the new hip game. <laughs> right, I'm all over the place. I've been in. You are all over the place. How many states have I been in when we're recording? I've been in like Vermont, Virginia. Not, I was about to say vagina, but I've not been in the state of vagina. I've been in Virginia. Uh, <laughs> I've been in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I've been it. No, I'm the only one on this podcast that wants to be in the state of vagina. But I wanted to mention this, and I didn't think this was appropriate, but but like the words penis and vagina are like Latin-based, whereas other less polite words are, I think, based on the Saxon word. So that was going into loan words, but I didn't think that was appropriate, so I didn't mention it. Oh, I was going to – I was going to mention that – 
curse words, I wasn't going to say any specific words, but curse words don't tend to be borrowed that much, that seems. Uh, like, occasionally, I think damn is like a romance route. But yes. in general, there don't seem to be. And it's it's a little bit funny to to uh, to hear, um, to uh, watch Firefly and hear hmm. all these Chinese curse words being used when you really wouldn't borrow from a prestige language from that for that. 